World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Hundreds of people in America have suffered a mysterious illness. Seven have died. The culprit appears to be e-cigarettes. The booming industry could surely do with more transparency, but still, it seems clear that vaping is less risky than smoking. And even the ever-expanding sandwich-in-a-box business has a luxury end. But the lobster rolls available at the international chain Pret-a-Manger are a window into a wider truth. Americans just don't mind shelling out more for lunch. First up, though. Today, Israel holds elections for the second time this year. Benjamin Netanyahu, who's led the country for the past 10 years, has been campaigning to hold on to his job as prime minister. On Friday, he sang the national anthem with his family and supporters of his Likud party. Yesterday, he visited the Western Wall in Jerusalem to see, as he said, the ancient sources from the Jewish nation that give us the strength to continue. In May, Mr. Netanyahu dissolved the last parliament after failing to form a coalition. He'd been dogged by scandals and faced insurrection from his political allies. Now, in a fresh election, he's trying to persuade Israelis to give him yet more years in power. That could also protect him from being prosecuted for corruption. In his campaign, he's pulled a number of surprising tricks out of the box. Well, Netanyahu's strategy has always been to try and maximize the turnout of his base, which is the right-wing and religious voters in Israel. Anshul Pfeffer reports from Israel for The Economist. He's basically been offering them almost anything that uh, that he can, and at the same time trying to suppress and intimidate uh, the left-wing and particularly the Arab citizens of Israel. Probably the most earth-shattering promise he's made is to annex parts of the West Bank. So last Tuesday... He had a special and even calling it a dramatic announcement of his plan to annex the Jordan Valley to Israel if, if re-elected, which is about 30% of the West Bank. In more recent interviews, he's been talking about annexing uh, the Jewish quarter in Hebron and the settlement of Kiryat Arba next door. Now, the question is whether we look at this through a political prism or through a diplomatic prism. Through a diplomatic prism, it's uh, it's a scandalous and earth-shattering event if it does happen because it would break uh, the international consensus that the West Bank uh, will be, at one point in the future, a Palestinian state. However, since he made this promise literally a week before the election and he's had 13 years in power and he's never done such a thing before, 
the argument would be that this should be seen through a political prism as a as an election promise and not necessarily as as actual government policy. How how did we get here? What happened with the election last time, and and why are we having another? So Israel was not supposed to have another election until 2023. However, Netanyahu, in the early hours of the 20th of April, made a victory speech celebrating his fifth uh, election victory and term, term of office, couldn't form a coalition, despite there being a majority for the right-wing and religious parties, because one of the parties, Israel Beteno, decided to use the issue of a proposed law for conscripting religious students to the army as a, as, a, as a reason not to enter his coalition. Without them, Netanyahu just did not have the majority, and he took a very surprising and unprecedented move by, by dissolving Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and plunging Israel into a second election campaign in the same year. And so what about the feeling on the street? How do, how do voters feel about, well, being called to the ballot box for the second time amid all of this mess? Well, Israelis have never had the second election in the same year, and a lot of voters you speak to um, undermotivated, don't really understand why they have to go back and vote again. Though most people I, I've met are planning to vote, and most people are planning to vote for more or less the same party they voted the last time, perhaps shifting to one party right with one party left, because there'll, there'll be at least eight or nine parties in the next uh, Israeli Knesset. And this could have an effect, because there is one right-wing party which has detached itself from the Netanyahu coalition and gone over to the opposition. And some people are talking of moving to that party. And, that, and, and, if, and if enough people have moved, Netanyahu will not have a way to build a majority. So, so where does that leave things? If, if Mr. Netanyahu is, is uh, flailing around trying to, to, to bring more votes in, how do you think things will go, his ability to, to, get, uh, to win outright or to be able to cobble together a, a coalition? We have to remember that the election result only five months ago left him needing one seat for a majority. And if the polls are anything to go by, since then, things have barely changed. He's actually lost two or three seats well, the obstacle that he's facing for a majority has actually grown, but uh, he's from from the polls. We're also also seeing that gap that gap begin to shrink towards election day. So things will be very very close, and it can be a seat either way, which will determine Netanyahu's fate. And what does the the rest of the political scene look like? It's clear what Mr. Netanyahu wants. What 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 what's the state of play with the other parties? Well, what we have now is a block of parties which are very clearly about to endorse Netanyahu after the election. Those are the the right wing and the religious parties that he's uh, relying on. On the opposition side, things are much less certain because. The opposition ranges from Arab nationalists and left-wingers to right-wing Jewish nationalists who are all opposed to Netanyahu, but there's no way that they'll be able to sit together in one coalition should Netanyahu fail. If Netanyahu does indeed fail in, in his quest for a majority, Israel is in store for a long period of deadlock while Benny Gantz, the main challenger, leader of the Blue and White Party, tries to cobble together some kind of a coalition. Well, with that palette of possibilities before us. What, what do you think is actually best, for the, the best outcome for Israel at the moment? I think Israel is in a period, in a very long period of uh, extracting itself from the Netanyahu era. And Netanyahu is facing multiple uh, charges of corruption. His pre-trial hearing is actually scheduled two weeks after the election. And even though the parties have, have trouble agreeing or supporting an alternative candidate, there does seem to be a majority, even 
even within the right wing of of uh, parties who would like to see him leave. So what we're we're in this long period where Netanyahu is trying is is being sort of eased out of office, and obviously from Israel's point of view, it would be better best for this period to take to take a shorter interval of time. But it doesn't seem that it doesn't seem to be happening. But sooner or later, Mr. Netanyahu will will, will be out. What what do you what, what do you think Israel will look like after that? What will Mr. Netanyahu's legacy be? If eventually he does lose that, either the electoral battle or the legal battle and is eased out of power, then Israel, I think, will have to start looking uh, very hard at its, at its political system and at the situation of its society in the post-Netanyahu era because we, you know, Israel has been consumed by the Netanyahu saga for so many years. It, it distracted all attention from Israel's real problems, whether it's the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians and its own society's problems. And I think it's time for Israel to start dealing with those things once uh, Netanyahu has, uh, has left the scene. But we're preempting something that has not yet happened. Anshul, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's been marketed as a safer alternative to smoking. We're here today to announce the first known death of a Los Angeles County resident related to the use of e-cigarettes. As of this week, seven people have died from a mysterious lung illness linked to vaping. There are now 380 confirmed and probable cases in America across more than 30 states. I'm 18 years old. My lungs are like a 70-year-old's. Many of these cases involve teens and young adults. And for e-cigarette companies, the timing couldn't be worse. They were already under fire over claims they marketed their products to children. The bottom line is, we need a change. We need these products out of the hands of our kids. And we got to do it together because our kids deserve more than to just be the guinea pig generation. Last week, President Trump announced a crackdown on the industry. But people are dying with vaping. So we're looking at it very closely and... His administration is looking into a ban on the sweet and fruity-flavored e-cigarettes that appeal to kids. On Sunday, the governor of New York announced a similar ban. Meanwhile, there's an ongoing federal investigation into the lung illness outbreak and its connection to vaping. What we're seeing so far is hundreds of people are being sickened with a sort of pulmonary disease. Natasha Loader is our health policy editor. They're presenting with things like shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting and fever. The outbreak has killed a number of people. And in a cluster of cases in North Carolina, which have been investigated in more detail, patients have been diagnosed with something called lipoid pneumonia, the rare and non-infectious condition that occurs when lipids or oils enter the lungs. And it does seem to be connected with vaping. And is it treatable? 
Patients have been treated with steroids. Obviously, the condition has been fatal. These patients have tended to be older with other complicating conditions. But it does seem that if the case is not too serious, that it can be treated. What we don't know is if there's going to be any long-term damage. And, and you mentioned that there is a correlation with vaping. I mean, what, what do we know about that? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. What seems to be the case is that most of the people who have fallen ill have had contact with black market vape pods containing cannabis extracts. So the authorities have started to hone in on something that could have been put into these illicit pods. And what they're looking at is something called vitamin E acetate. It's used as a thickener. All that said, one of the products that was sold in Oregon was bought legally in a regulated cannabis store, and that led to a death as well. So the picture's not completely crystal clear, but I think it's fair to say that most people are assuming this is some sort of contamination incident. And so what I mean by that is that prior to this incident, e-cigarettes were certainly not thought of as harmless But they were seen as moderately safe. And the sort of situation we have now is quite an acute incident of poisoning that looks a bit more, as I was told by one public health expert, a bit more like what you see when you get alcohol contamination incidents. So with that hypothesis in hand, what are the regulatory bodies advising? The regulatory bodies are all over the place. The Centers for Disease Control are saying people should stop vaping. The Food and Drug Administration, which has been investigating the products themselves, has been a bit more specific and told people not to buy vaping products on the street and to avoid products containing cannabis extracts. But also the Trump administration is is looking into a ban anyway on flavored e-cigarettes. Why is that? So the Trump announcement is a bit of political virtue signaling. You know, the government needs to show that it's doing something about vaping because the authorities have been pretty slow to regulate e-cigarettes in the way that perhaps other countries have. The announcement has no relationship to the deaths and injuries and will make no difference to whether there are deaths and injuries like this in the future. The real focus of this little bit of policy is really addressing an epidemic of childhood use of vaping products, particularly Juul's, one of the brands. And politicians have come under a lot of pressure from anti-tobacco campaigners and also parents really to do something about the fact that children are picking up e-cigarettes in really kind of disturbing numbers. I think about one in five of high school students now vape. And so do you think this announcement will will address that? Do you think this is the way to, to cut back on kids vaping? I do think it's a helpful decision in America, but you really have to ask yourself, how did the country get into this situation in the first place? You know, we don't have these sort of epidemics of youth vaping in countries like this or in other countries in Europe. And there are flavored pods on the market. The real source of the problem is that America has allowed these vaping companies to market to children through social media for far too long. And kids have very quickly picked up on the idea that it's a cool thing to do. They get a buzz out of it. And guess what? They've got these fruit flavors. And so all this has created a perfect storm in the US. They really needed to have been tightening up on advertising a long time ago. But let's put the the marketing to kids thing aside for a minute. The the fact is that the the long-term effects of smoking tobacco, very well-studied, well-known. E-cigarettes are comparatively new. The the long-term dangers still very ill-defined. 
Are you convinced that e-cigarettes are, are definitively safer? What we do know in the short term is that actually they're much less harmful and you can look at the sorts of compounds that you get in vape smoke and you can compare them with the compounds in cigarette smoke and then you can blow that smoke over all sorts of cells and you can figure out what's going on. And the science we have done so far does make it clear that because cigarette smoking is fantastically harmful, it seems very unlikely that vaping could be as risky with the obvious caveat, as long as you don't put something really stupid into the vape. And in answer to your question about the long-term effects, you're right, we don't really know what the long-term effects are. It's possible it will cause some sort of chronic lung disease. And, you know, there are also reports about an uptick in heart attacks in vapors. I don't want to dismiss that there are harms to e-cigarettes at all. I'm really trying to say, let's be proportional about this. We do harm reduction in other circumstances. We give out methadone to heroin addicts. And that's not because we think any of those things are healthy. We just think that the alternative is far worse. And so the health policy implication is still crystal clear. This particular outbreak aside, until that is better understood, you're better off vaping than smoking. Yeah, I think so. As long as you're buying a product off the supermarket shelf rather than off the streets, I don't think there's any reason for Americans to stop vaping at this point. With one caveat, the only reason to vape from a health perspective is to smoke less. If you're a long-term vapor, you really need to quit. So you're content then that the existing regulation on what's in them is to be trusted? I'd like to see tighter regulation in the US on what goes in. I don't think people should be vaping anything at all that isn't completely and fully disclosed to the FDA, to somewhere like that. All that said, e-cigarettes have been used for many years by millions of smokers in America. That's not a certificate of safety, but that does give you some reassurance that the sort of acute problems we're seeing right now are not a basic problem of the product, but are really to do with some kind of contamination. Natasha, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pretty simple meal served in the summer months in New England. Typically just five ingredients served in a hot dog bun. But the lobster roll is also a high-end snack. The meat is seasonal, hard to find, and it goes off quickly. For some, though, they're getting easier to find. So this summer, Pret-a-Manger, a sandwich and a box specialist, added lobster rolls to the menu. Leo Morani is an economist correspondent with an abiding interest in lunch. Weirdly, they're in baguettes and not rolls, but they still call them lobster rolls. But that is not the most scandalous thing. What's the most scandalous thing? Um, the most scandalous thing is that in Britain, they cost £5.99, around seven and a quarter dollars. In the US, they cost $9.99. It's confusing because the lobster comes from the same place. They say specifically, this is Maine lobster. High street commercial rent in London and New York is roughly the same. Labor costs are comparable. The sticker price doesn't include tax. So why are you paying so much more? for the same sandwich on the other side of the Atlantic. Is this just something specific to what is widely perceived to be a, a luxury food stuff? Not really. So as a dedicated investigative journalist, I gathered and then consumed quite a lot of data on the subject. And what I found was that sandwich prices at Pret specifically, although elsewhere too, in the States, 
are much higher than in Britain. The most egregious example is the egg sandwich, which in New York was $5 and in London a pound 80, which is a difference of 123%. You brought a spreadsheet. I did. So how are these menu prices figured out in the first place? I spoke to John Buchanan of the Lettuce Consulting Group, who told me that there's a number of factors that go into deciding the price of something on a menu. Your most basic rule of thumb is you take how much it costs to put something on the plate and you multiply by three. But then a whole bunch of other things come into it. So start with how much might a customer expect to pay for this sort of thing? Next, how much might the customer expect to pay for this sort of thing at your establishment? You know, a pret is very different from a lobster shack in Maine or a fancy lobster restaurant in midtown Manhattan. And then how much is your competition, that is pret's competition, charging for that type of item? And then you take all of these things and you figure out what is the maximum amount of money somebody would be willing to pay to eat this thing at your establishment. So we are forced on the basis of these copious data to conclude that Americans are just simply willing to pay more for lunch. Is that, is that it? Not just for lunch. Americans seem willing to pay more for flights, for mobile contracts, for broadband, everything except petrol, basically. But specifically lunch, you tend to get bigger portions in the States, although I should say the bigger portions are not at Brett. There's also culture surrounding tipping. So there's all these expectations baked in for why Americans just routinely pay more for lunch. Secondly, London is, and I realize how silly it sounds saying these words out loud, but London is a very competitive sandwich market. When you can go to Tesco and get a meal deal for three pounds, which includes not just a sandwich, but also a snack and a drink, you know, you'd get laughed off the high street if you tried to charge £10 for a sandwich. So in short, it, it pays to, to comparison shop and if need be, to cross an ocean. I mean, if you want a cheap lunch and you're in midtown Manhattan, your best option is to come to London. Leo, thank you very much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.